Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Here we are at the end of another week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut and very grateful, as always, that you've joined us for our show today. Um, Disturbing development uh, yesterday in the trial of the three men accused of uh, murdering Ahmaud Arbery, and we're going to start the show by talking about that. Um, And I want to get right to it, so let's introduce our panel today. It's Friday. Patricia Murphy, political reporter and political columnist, writes the political insider for the AJC and oversees the jolt that you read every day at AJC.com. Hey, Patricia, I know there were an awful lot of people that I know, and maybe you too, went to the Mick Jagger concert here in Atlanta last night. I know, for instance, Greg Bluestein and his wife Cheryl went over there. You and I, however, were at an event celebrating the Mick Jagger of Georgia political journalism, Jim Galloway. He was inducted into the Atlanta Press Club Hall of Fame last night. It was a wonderful evening. It was a wonderful night. Yes, our very own um, local legend, Jim Galloway. It was so much fun. But I told Greg this morning, I'm like, so 2 a.m. on your clock, which is when he got in, is the same as 9 p.m. on my clock since I get up at 3.30. So by like 8.45 at the event the other night, my eyes are like well, just drooping onto the – I could not literally keep my eyes open. But if there's anybody I would stay up late for, it is Jim Galloway. It was one of the things that was so lovely, and I want our listeners to know, I mean, he's a beloved figure in, in your newsroom. I, I, the turnout among AJC people last night was extraordinary. Your publisher, Donna Hall, was there. Kevin Riley was there. Leroy Chapman, about eight of you who are reporters. That I just think that's a real tribute to what a, uh, an important person Jim has been over the years to the newspaper. Yeah, he was both a, just an incredible, beautiful writer, but he was all, he's also just a wonderful person and was a, a really important leader in the newsroom, has just a level of maturity and um, uh, gravity and context and humor that people just gravitate towards. So um, that's why there was that huge turnout for him last night. It was, yeah. um, it yeah. was really just wonderful. Very, very impressive. Okay, um, let's get the rest of the panel into the show today. Professor Audrey Haynes, professor of political science at the University of Georgia, who was not at the concert last night, but your Facebook feed, Audrey, was filled with video that your husband took down at the uh, concert. Yes, I, I wasn't able to go, but as a as a Rolling Stones fan, my husband was nice enough to send me a lot of really good videos. So I got to enjoy it, even though I was sitting here in Athens. Okay. Uh, Professor Tammy Greer is back with us. She teaches political science at Clark Atlanta University. Tammy showed us, I'm going to tell everybody, Tammy has, because we see each other on WebEx, which we can't broadcast, everybody always comments on this great bookshelf that uh, uh, Tammy sits in front of. And today, Tammy, you showed us, it goes all the way to the ceiling. You have quite a collection of books. I do. And I have the, the joy of living in a loft. So my ceilings are very high. So I intentionally got the shelf built all the way to the top. It's very impressive. But thank you for joining us today. And Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science and associate chair of the political science department at Georgia State University, uh, back with us. Amy, I suppose that uh, if it's not the Rolling Stones, your joy right now is that Atlanta United has made the playoffs. We are terrifically excited by that, though a little bummed that there's not going to be a home match. Um, however, we did not go to the yeah. Rolling Stones, but we are going to see Earth, Wind, and Fire in a week, which I'm pretty excited about. Oh, <laughs> okay. Oh, terrific. All right. Well, we've gotten a lot of personal information from all of you today, and, and I am really appreciate that you would share that uh, with us. Let's get right to this uh, news, and, and let me set the stage for you and play you some sound and then get the panel to comment on it. So there was already controversy at the trial of the three men accused of murdering uh, Ahmad Arbery because there are 11 whites and only one black person on the jury. Now we've had an additional element added to the trial. Um, the other day, 
Reverend Al Sharpton came down to Brunswick. He uh, led a rally outside the courtroom. There have been rallies uh, throughout the trial there, mostly among people who are saying they want justice uh, in the death of Ahmad Arbery. But uh, then uh, Sharpton came into the courtroom and sat with the family. All of that unfolded. And then, the, um, as, a, as a reaction to that, one of the defense attorneys, the attorney for William Roddy, Roddy Bryant, Kevin Goh, I think I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, stood up, and among other things, this is what he said to the judge. Obviously, there's only so many pastors they can have. And if their pastor's Al Sharpton right now, that's fine. But then that's it. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here or other Jesse Jackson, whoever was in, was in here earlier this week, sitting with the victim's family trying to influence a jury in this case. And I'm not saying the state is even aware that Mr. Sharpton was in the courtroom. I certainly wasn't aware of it until last night. But I think the court can understand my concern uh, about bringing people in who really don't have any ties to this case other than political interests. Uh, and we want to keep politics out of this case. If a bunch of folks came in here dressed like Colonel Sanders with white masks sitting in the back, I mean, that would be um, So Sam Burmistaz wanted me to remind, tell you all that he pulled, those were separate uh, sound bites from the trial. That's why they sounded a little bit different. Patricia Murphy, that remark, I mean, that the insensitivity, the offensiveness of that is so overwhelming that it's hard to know where to go with it. Well, and it really compounds people's um, concerns and some people's assumptions that uh, it might not be possible to have a fair trial in Brunswick um, and that it might not be possible generally um, sometimes for the murder of a black man at the hands of white assailants, um, could they ever get a fair trial based on the evidence that's presented, but then also based on the assumptions that are built into so many of these court cases. And when you have um, the uh, defense attorney uh, saying things that are just so inflammatory about black pastors and Colonel Sanders, it is the type of conversation that would not even be appropriate for a lunch table conversation, let alone in a court of law, um, where there's a man who's been killed probably because he was assumed to be dangerous just because of the color of his skin. Um, and so that's the backdrop that this, these comments have been put into. And um, in my mind, it really uh, does a lot of damage to the credibility of the courtroom. Um, now, the judge intervened very quickly and said, like, I don't know what you're talking about. No one's getting kicked out of this courtroom if they're not being disruptive, and nobody's been disruptive so far. Um, and, you know, the, the judge almost intimidated or intimated that uh, the only disruption was from the lawyer. So I think the judge is keeping a tight, tight reins on that. But it, it just injects a level of concern into this trial that I just hate to see happen. Yeah, Tammy, I want to pick up on what Patricia said. Uh, Judge Wamsley was kind of a voice of reason and calm in the middle of that. He said um, he told uh, uh, the lawyer that um, he had been asked whether it was all right for uh, Reverend Sharpton to come in and sit in the courtroom. And he said, and this is a quote from the judge, my comment to that was simply as long as things are not disruptive and it's not a distraction to the jury or anything else going on in the courtroom, so be it. I, but I noticed him once and that was it. And then he said this, if indi individuals based on the limitations we have end up sitting in the courtroom and they do so respectful of the court's process and in compliance with this court's orders with regards to the conduct of the trial and they're not a distraction, I'm not going to do anything about it, Tammy. Right, and it's it's on brand, though. Um, I think we have to keep that in mind because earlier, um, the one of the defense attorneys uh, noted that there weren't enough Bubba's and Joe, Joe six packs um, in the jury pool. So this seems to be on brand, just another side of a similar type of dialogue when it comes to the trial, which also. And brings it to the forefront um, that race is is at the surface of this particular trial of the reason why these three men went after Ahmad Aubrey um, as to why you only have out of 
not only the the jury that is sitting, the alternates, you only have one non-white um, I, you know, to be able to sit um, and, and to hear this evidence and then to render a verdict. So it's very fascinating to me the the level of victimization that the defense attorney is putting on as if the people that committed the acts are now the victims and we should shield them from um, some of the realities of their actions. Amy and then Audrey. Um, I completely agree with everything that, that Patricia and Tammy have laid out. I mean, I think the other things to note are sort of number one, courtrooms are open to the public. There is, in fact, no ground for excluding someone, particularly excluding a group of people who I guess would have to announce themselves before they walk in as being both black and pastors, which is a fascinating way. He also mentioned um, influ or high ranking African-Americans, which would sort of suggest that anybody who I guess is black and somewhat noticeable to anyone would be excluded, which is a problematic term to say, because, of course, he's also not saying the same thing about uh, those who are not black being excluded, but also the fact that, again, our courtrooms are public. Uh, people are able to go in and watch, and the grounds for which exclusion occurs is if you are being disruptive. And on some level, I think what was notable here is that this was much less a real concern about intimidation and instead about trying to um, kind of capture the story and get it out there because the lawyer made the comment, I didn't know he was there. So it is difficult to suggest that there was somebody who was in the courtroom who was actively acting in a way that was trying to be intimidating if he himself didn't know he was there, because one would imagine that he is also someone that might have been, that it might have been directed at. And so that really goes against it. But I think the other issue is that um, there's also been real concerns. And, and what is difficult here is that many times a lot of these issues, we think about them in the courtroom from the perspective of the defense trying to ensure a fair trial. So, for example, uh, the deliberate exclusion of people from a jury. Usually we worry about that on that the prosecution will do that, and that can be grounds for the defense to ask for a mistrial. Here we have the opposite, where it's actually the defense engaging in it. And so that's what partly creates this weird thing of the judge saying, yes, I think they did actually exclude people based on race, but we'll allow it to go forward because many times we're much more concerned about ensuring the defense is fair than ensuring that the prosecution um, kind of gets a fair attempt to make its thing because the prosecution comes in with more power. And so that becomes difficult. Yes. I would only add that, you know, in looking at this and reading that, that article and observing what's going on in the trial, to me it seemed like um, the attorney made an error. Because, you know, in framing the, you know, the way he's framing the trial, the way he's mentioning these things, um, you know, it just lends more color to the notion that it is racial, as Tammy said. And if anything else, I would think that may influence the jury to be paying more attention and, you know, focusing more on the actions of, of the defendants. Um, being driven by that, by by presenting it more as a hate crime, when your own attorney is saying things that are so, you know, triggering of this notion of a real schism between black and white, rather than focusing on the details of the case, you know, and making it as, you know, non-related to those issues as possible. So I think it's going to have a, a negative impact on on their strategy for Brian. Yeah, I yeah, you know, Patricia, I think Amy and uh, 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 Audrey just made this point, that, and I thought the same thing. Here's uh, Kevin Goh sort of pitting Colonel Sanders in his white suit, uh, you know, a symbol of the Old South against a black pastor. We don't want any more black pastors. It couldn't be any more stark than that comparison. But here's what I want to ask you about in terms of that. Um, he is a local Brunswick lawyer. He's from that community. We have already seen lots of reporting, among others by Margaret Coker uh, at The Current, about pervasive racism in that community. And, and The Current, actually, un under Margaret, did a, a pretty interesting investigation, which we talked about on this show about a week ago, about racism within the police department down there. And, and the fact that he's of that community 
and apparently didn't think twice before the way he framed his argument really does add fuel to this fire about just, if nothing more, a complete insensitivity to race in 2021. Well, an even kind of more cynical interpretation might be that he did think twice about what he was saying. Um, and mm. he uh, does want to uh, send that message, connect with the people in that courtroom. Like, hey, we, we all understand each other, don't we? Um, I'm not sure that that's how it landed <laughs> with everybody else in the courtroom. Um, but I was also struck when he was raising the fact that, well, you know, some jurors could be intimidated by a black pastor. Um, it's also very possible that the black juror was comforted by a black pastor being in the courtroom. And the reason that uh, Al Sharpton goes to these high-profile trials um, in some cases, and I'll certainly maybe put Reverend Barber more in this case, is to um, is to send the message that we um, expect the uh, in this case, it's not the defendant. In this case, it's we expect the prosecution to get a fair hearing. We expect African-Americans in this community to get the full benefit of the law. Uh, we expect and will ensure that you know that we are watching you, that we mm -hmm. have um, the power to publicize this. And that's why he's there, is to make sure that there is a media spotlight and to make sure that it's the opposite of intimidation for the Black residents of that community, that it's defending them in, instead. So, Tammy, look, let's be candid about this. Al Sharpton's a polarizing figure. He has been for many, many years, and, and we have to weigh that into our conversation about this. There are many people who probably wish, in, in well-intentioned ways, maybe, who knows, that a guy like Sharpton wouldn't show up at every uh, major uh, uh, event around the country that deals with race. So there is polarization there, but again, the way the lawyer addressed it just made no sense at all. If I were Roddy Bryant, I don't know how much longer I'd want this guy to represent me. <laughs> Right. Um, to Patricia's point, though, um, if Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson or Reverend Barber or any of the high profile individuals, if they were not there, would some of the components of the trial be brought to the light of day beyond Glenn County, beyond, you know, um, the state of Georgia? Would it be brought to light? And so we have to really, you know, take a step to say, um, do we really, should we have to go to such measures in order for light to be shown on cases that clearly to some um, is, is, is racial? Um, there was um, appeared, uh, according to, you know, um, misstatements, false statements to police, right? And if, if, if no one is, if, if the light isn't shown on it, and someone who is from the community who worked with the law enforcement is able to lie. And it appears as though the law enforcement did not do a thorough investigation based on the misstatements by the um, accuser, by the um, alleged aggressors in these cases, then, you know, you won't have the, the benefit of vindication of the victim in this case. And the victim, you know, could be murdered uh, based on a lie, and everyone goes with the lie. So I think we really have to be careful um, as to how we are looking at it and, um, and and being fair to the process overall. Yeah, and I would add that given everything that happened before this trial, you know, given all of the missteps and cover-ups and, you know, um, you know, it's, I, I think that most people would agree that it's important for them to be there sort of standing watch and, and shedding light on it because there's a lack of trust of that process there. And, and finally, uh, Amy, before we move on, uh, <laughs> this does nothing for the national image of Georgia once again. I mean, the national media spent a lot of time reporting on the uh, composition of the jury, the fact that only one black person was ultimately chosen uh, to serve on that jury. It got a lot of attention. This, I, it has, it's just starting this morning to get the kind of attention that there no doubt is going to uh, appear in national media uh, everywhere. Oh, it's all over because I was looking to see what I could find about it, and it's on the front of CNN and, and all of that. And I think, yes, it, it does not aid with that. It does not aid, as Tammy was talking about, with 
uh, sort of the continuing story of the variety of missteps and ethical issues. I mean, we had DAs having to be removed because of right known conflicts of interest and things like that, and, and the governor coming in at one point um, to replace people. And so um, this does not aid with that. And it also makes it, again, as I said, very difficult from the point of the judge, because usually we're worried about ensuring fairness for the defense, right, and making sure that there's not too much power from the prosecution and that they're not abusing the fact that they, they come in as the government, right, from court. And this is sort of the, the opposite um, of where that is going in. And so that's one of the reasons why the judge has to walk this sort of fine line, for better or for worse, um, but at the same time, we've got where these go. I mean, one of the questions that I, I don't actually know the answer to is to what degree uh, the jury has been impaneled and is sort of blocked from seeing the news because they were not in the courtroom when these statements were being made. Right. Right. And so right. they're not seeing it, but yeah. they might be hearing about it. Right. It's sort of a question of to what degree they're not supposed to be reading the news. But let's be honest, it comes out. But this is coming through in other places. And so there is a question, I think, even going to Patricia's point about, is this also, I mean, as, as weird as it may sound, almost trying to do something that so triggers the line that it leads to a mistrial, right? That they have to sort of start over and there's sort of a concern that they can't continue because of that bias, right? They've already had at least one juror removed um, and he was actually removed because he made um, terribly racist comments to one of the deputies that was with them. Uh, there was another where other jurors have been removed. And so there, there already are, are problems there. And so it does lead to whether or not, in fact, there's an intentional legal strategy here to actually aid the defendant in getting a mistrial. All right. Well, another national headline coming out of uh, the Brunswick twi trial um, uh, of the McMichaels and uh, Roddy Bryant. Why don't we do this? Why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way and uh, come back and talk a little bit about electoral politics on Political Rewind? <laughs> The AJC's Patricia Murphy, who I neglected to say at the start of the show, whose column you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the AJC, joins me as we talk with three terrific political scientists from universities in Georgia on the show today. Uh, Tammy Greer from Clark Atlanta, Amy Steigerwald from Georgia State, and Audrey Haynes from the University of Georgia. So, Patricia, um, <laughs> I mentioned on the show yesterday that uh, if I were running for office right now, uh, I think I might, in Georgia, I might be a little frustrated that there seems to be more attention being paid to those people who we haven't heard from in terms of whether they're running or not right now. We've talked about the fact that there's a lot of rumor about whether David Perdue is going to challenge uh, Brian Kemp, and we can talk about that at some point today if we want to. But now, uh, Newsweek magazine publishes an article about Stacey Abrams and, and talks to someone who says they're a close advisor. It's an anonymous source, so we don't know how close this person is. That maybe what Stacey is really looking for is the opportunity to run for president in 2024 if Biden doesn't, or if he does, 2028, which would probably preclude a run for governor next year. You all reported it in the AJC so you must think it has some value as a story we ought to be talking about. <laughs> well, um, yes, the Newsweek story was fascinating. It was more fascinating to me, actually, because that advisor said that Stacey Abrams wants to be uh, the first black female governor in the country. And uh, that's the first time we've seen a signal out of somebody who may or may not be in her camp. We don't know. I, I don't love a, an anonymous source on this. Um, but you have to think of if Newsweek is going to go with an anonymous source that should be pretty closely placed. But at any rate, it's the first time we've heard even a smoke signal that Stacey Abrams wants to be governor soon. Um, and so I took it more as a sign that she will indeed get in. We are everyone's understanding is that she will get in. Um, but we're also getting it's less than a year from Election Day 2022. Um, we are getting to the point where 
Um, Democrats and Republicans want some certainty about what they're going to be dealing with and what their goals need to be, what their challenges are going to be. And politicians do not like uncertainty and they don't appreciate it from their fellow politicians because they know how it makes their job harder. So I think a lot of this is just anxiety that the calendar is getting short and it's time for some decisions to be made and made publicly. Okay, so Patricia, I guess it's interesting. I I I, I understand that quote that and she wants to become the first black governor uh, uh, in the United States, but if she wants to then run for president in twenty twenty four twenty twenty eight, you can't. You've got to be very careful about your next move, right, Patricia? You can't lose the governor's uh, office. I think twice. And then be she's right now. Let me just read, and then everybody can weigh in on this. What I really thought, in many ways, was uh, particularly interesting about this article was it it reminded us of what an extraordinary national star she is. Here's the here's the lead. More than a thousand ticket buying fans bathe Stacey Abrams in adulation the minute she steps into the spotlight at the cavernous Chevalier Theater in the Boston suburb of Medford in late October. She waves with both hands, sits down in a deep leather chair, and flashes her famous gap-toothed grin until the standing ovation subsides and the sixth stop, and it goes on from there. I mean, this article makes us really realize here in Georgia what an extraordinary impact, Patricia, she's had in democratic circles across the country. Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, and I've written this before, that she is basically Oprah in the country now. She has just so <laughs> transcended what it means to be a politician, and she has become, in for many people, a superhero, a an, uh, an idol, um, but somebody who also has real tangible results from the 2020 elections here in Georgia. And she's just gotten an enormous amount of credit for the ground game that she built in, 20, in 2018, heading into that. Um but you raise the point, I mean, we're in a time of such dynamic political change that we don't know what's the bigger risk if you want to run for president. And we know she wants to run for president someday. Is it a bigger risk never to have been elected governor, never been to have been elected anything other than House Minority Leader um, from a single legislative district? Or is it a bigger risk um, to run for governor and lose? Um, I, I don't think anybody knows how a race would go here in Georgia in 2022 for the Republicans or for the Democrats. It's just such a dynamic time. We don't know what the electorate is. We don't know what the issues are. President Biden's numbers are just dropping like a rock. They hope that'll change now that they've passed some Democratic bills. But the environment has gotten a little sticky, especially with the Virginia governor's race <clears throat> in hindsight. So there's just a lot of risk associated with it. And it, it's just going to come down to what Stacey Abrams wants to do. It is an open door for her <clears throat> here in Georgia. But as much as she's beloved, she's also quite polarizing and Republicans are dying to run against her. Yeah. Audrey? Well, gosh, there's so much to say. You know, one, um, Stacey Abrams is a planner. I mean, that's obvious. People know that. I've been talking to a lot of the people who've been coming to my class who are really engaged in Georgia politics and Students and, and myself always ask that question about what do you think? Is Stacey going to run? We've even had a few people who are very close to Stacey Abrams um, in terms of uh, friendship and, and working. And, you know, a lot of them are, again, very mum because people who know Stacey and work with her are very loyal um, and they all think she is brilliant and that she has created a very successful infrastructure that has been mimicked in places across the country. And um, but most of them you know, off the record, we'll say she's got to run. You know, she's worked so hard to make Georgia, you know, a competitive state, and she's helped build that infrastructure that she would not do anything that would harm that. And and not running and delaying would probably have a negative impact. So the expectation is that she's run, but she's doing it on her terms, right? I mean, this is funny. And she's laid the groundwork, and a lot of people think it won't hurt her. But I would say sitting governors can run for president. They've done it before. And so that really is not oh. something, yeah, that would that would hurt her. Um, and, and she has national name recognition. In some ways, what she's doing right now is probably smarter than putting herself out there to be a punching bag for Republicans at the moment. She's raising money, well, making connections. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. 
No, no. I, first of all, I agree with you that a sitting governor can run for president. My question was, can a person who loses the governor's office twice, as is possible, uh, and have the same kind of credibility uh, in a presidential losers, race down the line? Run. And eventually they win. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, uh, Tammy, we do know, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, that in 2018, Stacey Abrams uh, masterminded a brilliant strategy that was a complete change in how Georgia Democrats looked at winning elections. We, we used to have the old... A school Democrat, yellow dog Democrat strategy. If we're going to get Republican, we're going to get yellow dog Democrats in rural Georgia combined with suburban voters. They're going to with urban voters, and they're going to elect Democrats. Well, that was a failed policy, and Abrams was the one to come along and say, "No, no, no. We have to build a new coalition around African American uh, voters with more progressive policies that will attract, you know, progressive white voters." And it was a brilliant strategy that brought her pretty close to the governor's uh, mansion. Now, on our show last week, as Patricia Murphy was here and can attest, Michael Thurman essentially made it clear that he is, in fact, thinking about whether he should run. And he believes that what we learned in Virginia is that that progressive path isn't as clear today as Stacey Abrams made it in 2018, that it's more moderate voters who need to be attracted back to the Democratic Party. So that's my long way of asking you and Amy Steigerwald to weigh in. <laughs> um, so um, I guess both candidates were actually listening to political scientists in a way, um, because um, <laughs> um, first, I think it's important you know, to note that there, were, there are many organizations within the state of Georgia um, that don't get the notoriety that do not get the level of, of, of fundraising and dollars that um, uh, Abrams organizations do, yet they still do work, and they have been for many, many decades. Um, that being said, it, it's also important, um, I think, for us to, to reckon with that while uh, Georgia is, is moving and has been moving um, competitive for at least a decade, um, it's important for us to understand that you can't go from um, a very conservative state and jump to, you know, a liberal state like um, a, a California or a New York in a way. That there has to be some progression, right, to 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 move in that direction. So um, to have coalitions, absolutely, um, moving from, you know, to, to move to effective policy is is critically important. Um, and if if we understand the voters of Georgia. Not all voters of Georgia will jump, make that leap um, all the way to very liberal politics. And we have to be okay with that if um, your plan is to move policy. I, if I could also say that I think it's important for us not to be so focused on the politics of an individual um, rather than policy overall. Because if we move to, you know, the party being about an individual, as we had with the former president, then you're locking yourself into that particular individual's ideology. Mm -hmm. And we don't allow for the breadth that is um, um, a spectrum of ideology when it comes to um, either political party. Amy? Yeah, I think that was an excellent point. And I think the other thing that really goes on here to sort of turn it back is that much like we saw when with the um, special with the senatorial election, so if we think back a couple years, um, there's this question of exactly who is going to be the candidate and, and who's going to run. And so on, on the one hand, there's the issue that or there, there is the reality that uh, the Democratic Party for a long time did not have a statewide um, sort of base and field operations set up, right? That very much so changed in the 2018 election. And we saw that sort of continuing through with 2020 in ways that uh, are very important for uh, kind of recognizing the ways in which the state is changing, not just demographically, but also politically. The other side of it, though, is the actual candidates themselves, that on the one hand, there is now this base of operations, there's field operations sort of all over the state, and Democrats are able to sort of put there, but there is also 
still, I think is, is fair to say, a lack of a very deep bench of people to run for office and who have expressed interest in that. And some of that may, may be fairly or unfairly attributed to somewhat this delay, right? In some level, like the longer that Stacey Abrams sort of decides whether or not she's going to run, if she decides not to, the harder it is, the more difficult it is for another candidate to run because they have all sort of been waiting and holding back. And so that means they haven't built up their operation. They haven't fundraised. They haven't tried to get their name out there. And so that becomes sort of problematic. Of course, on the other side is the fact that with the Republicans, uh, we now have the prospect of an incredibly messy primary that's happening over there. And so perhaps that means it's less of a problem. Um, in that sort of political sense. But I think more broadly, there's this real question of what does it mean? And I, and I think Jamie's got an excellent point that we sometimes are, we have candidate-centered elections, but the problem with candidate-centered elections is that we focus way too much on who the precise candidate is without sort of looking at policy, without looking at the broader thing. There's a very good argument to be made that with the McAuliffe race, part of the problem was is that the race really was vote against Trump, right? There really wasn't an argument to vote for McAuliffe. Um, it also turned out, I did not know this one until after the race ends, that in the last 12 gubernatorial elections in Virginia, so going back 48 years, the person running that was from the party of the White House only won once out of those. So that's its own thing. But I think that there is an important, I think actually what we learned from Virginia is simply saying, I'm not Trump, is not going to be an effective strategy going forward, and there needs to be a policy debate. So lots of really interesting comments about this, Patricia, um, both let's not focus quite so much on the personality on the individual and think more about how the, the direction of the party's policies are going. Uh, at, 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 close out this uh, part of the conversation with your thoughts on all this. Well, what is so amazing to me in Georgia is that this is kind of seen as a toss-up state at all. I mean, it has been such a Republican lock for uh, so long, it is still difficult as an outside observer to really get your head around the direction the state is going. But I think it's an excellent point. It has not flipped from red to blue. This is now a state that is competitive. And while I think the policies are very important, we know that voters respond to people. And so it is going to take a really dynamic um, person who is also very, very skilled at politics, who can also raise a bundle of money to even keep the state competitive. Democrats got a huge boost, thanks to Donald Trump, just for being Donald Trump. Um, but what we know about 2022 already, there's going to be a marquee Senate race with Raphael Warnock's race and possibly Herschel Walker, which would just be unbelievable to cover. Um, and we know that Donald Trump is going to make himself um, a, uh, he'll just set a seat for himself at the dinner table, whether he's been invited or not. And so um, all of these dynamics are going to have to play into Stacey Abrams' decision as well, because a lot of what's happening may not be, she may not be the master of her own destiny um, when it when it's all said and done. So it just depends on what she wants to do. Really, really, thank you for uh, really interesting uh, comments, all of you on that. We'll obviously keep paying attention uh, to that racism. So one quick thing, Patricia, what did you make of what Michael Thurman told us on the show last week? It was right close to the end of the show. We didn't press him on it because we were sort of taken aback by it. What, what did you make of his sort of hinting that maybe he does want to run for governor next year with, with or without Stacey Abrams in the race? Well, I loved it because I love surprises. Um, it made me wonder why I hadn't called him before and asked him this most obvious question. It made me think he's very polite not to have stepped on Stacey Abrams' uh, 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 waiting uh, just yet. Um, and then also, you know, I called him to follow up just to say, did I hear what I think I just heard? <laughs> that, that is not a reluctant warrior. I'll tell you, he no. is he loves yeah. to run. He's run many successful statewide campaigns. Uh, he's got a whole he has an entire governing and election strategy in his head. Um, so, you know, there's so much more that's interesting out there than we really consider until it happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah and Audrey, you'd have an Athens man. <laughs> running for governor if he should choose to do that. 
Yes. And, you know, Michael was one of our second speaker this semester. He came and talked about um, some of the work he's doing in DeKalb County, but uh, one of, he gave one of our ethics talks. And uh, we asked him that same question, whether he was thinking about running or not. And there was some enthusiasm among students, um, especially after they heard him speak, to give some support to that idea. Well, fascinating. But of course, we're all, all of us, journalists, political scientists, professors, Democrats, waiting to hear from Stacey Abrams, because clearly she is the star of the show at this point in the Democratic Party in Georgia. Uh, before we take a break, I, I want to spend a minute, Patricia, on this, um, this proposal that State Senator Clint Dixon, who's a Republican in Gwinnett County, has now made to, number one, double the number of seats on the Gwinnett County Board of Commissions, and number two, uh, make Board of Education uh, elections nonpartisan. Now, the reason it's, I think, worthy of our, our talking about is, for the first time in decades, the, the Gwinnett County Commission is now controlled by Democrats. So what we have here, essentially, is the Gwinnett County version of FDR packing the Supreme Court. <laughs> Let's hope we can put some more Republicans in there. But, but it's of interest beyond that to the whole state, I think, because it's another example of legislators downtown looking for ways to ensure power uh, in a local community uh, by trying tactics that they think will help Republicans, right? Yes. Well, you know, all journalists uh, at the state capitol, I'm, I'm going to say all journalists, unless there was somebody more clever than, than I am, we were <laughs> very, very focused on redistricting, of course. Um, very focused on that possible Buckhead proposal to secede from Atlanta. Nobody saw this coming um, from uh, Clint Dixon, who's a Republican in Gwinnett. And that's the reason I think it has gained so much attention in the last two days since it happened. Um, he did it without talking to the members of the Gwinnett County Board of Commissioners or the Board of Education, including the Republicans on that board didn't ask, is this a good idea? Do you guys still want to do this? Um, it just really came out of nowhere. Um, and so it has raised the suspicions, of course, of Democrats from Gwinnett who also didn't know about it. And local legislation by Senate rule needs to be approved by the members of the local delegation before it's introduced. Um, and it is, it, they didn't even know about it. So I think the timing of this has really come out of nowhere. And then you just can't ignore um, both the political dynamics, it's majority uh, Democrat on those boards now, and the racial dynamics, but it's also majority Black on those boards right now. It's a new dynamic. Um, and for these pieces of legislation to come out of literally nowhere, um, it makes me wonder, I'll just wonder out loud, if it's about changing those boards or if it's about Clint Dixon's next reelection um, in order to send a message to his voters, hey, guys, you know, there's not a lot he can't do anything about the local board of education because it's an independent school system, but he can, he, I know he's getting an earful from his constituents about it. Um, he, he, he can at least say, Hey, I tried guys. I tried. I bought this bill. Don't worry. I am on your side. Um, I think it has more to do with that next election than even the election of those school board or County commissioners. Uh, that's really interesting. Uh, Amy, we should say though, that the, uh, education portion of this did pass out of the state and local government operations committee on, uh, Wednesday, four to three, even though democratic legislators wanted more time to discuss it. They claimed that the chair of the committee, Senator Lee Anderson violated procedure by skipping over, ignoring a motion to table. So Patricia may very well be right, but he's getting support in the Senate from his Republican colleagues to keep this thing alive. It's going to be interesting to see sort of how this proceeds, because there's also a question of whether or not it actually meets the very specific grounds of what can be considered under the special session, that it needs to be um, an urgent and emergency matter. Um, where it's sort of unclear what exactly the grounds are to be able to justify that. And so that also kind of goes into it. But I think it, I think it does speak to these broader points of the ways in which the construction of these institutions can have really important impacts on what they look like and then the outputs that they produce and how simply adding more people, yes, can potentially have the effect of diluting the board that had been originally agreed upon um, by the voters, right? I mean, this, this is a board that was chosen by the voters. And so 
there's a question of sort of where that comes in and how that will play even in Clint Dixon's area. Okay, uh, interesting story. We'll keep track of it. I got to get to a break, uh, our final break of the show. I still have a couple of stories I'm really eager to hear you all talk about in just a moment. I have an update uh, to share with you on the story we started the show with, uh, what's going on in the uh, trial in Brunswick. Margaret Coker, editor-in-chief of The Current, sent us an email in which she tells us that um, the court, the judge, has requested that, uh, that Kevin Goh, the lawyer who made those comments that were so offensive to so many people, should elaborate on his comments, and Goh said he would, quote, follow up putting those concerns in the proper context. So we'll see what that means. He clearly woke up this morning and realized he had kicked up a storm of controversy. So we'll follow that. But thank you, Margaret Coker, who, by the way, will be joining us on Political Rewind on uh, Monday. All right, we're, we're, I want to get in two issues, if I can. Um, one, I, I, before we get out, Patricia Murphy wrote a beautiful, beautiful tribute to Max Cleland, her former boss, and then subsequently her friend. And I want to get a chance to talk about that. Before we do, very quickly, um, let me ask Amy and Tammy to weigh in on this. Raphael Warnock, Senator Warnock has been saying ever since Virginia and probably before that Democrats are doing a lousy job selling both the infrastructure bill and the social policy bill uh, to Georgians and people across the country, that there are measures in there that are going to dramatically impact people's lives, but they haven't sold it properly. And Virginia is probably an example of that. Audrey and Tammy, let me give you each a chance to just briefly weigh in on that. So um, I completely agree, right? Um, and But this is not a new issue or, or a new challenge with the Democratic Party. This is an ongoing challenge. And part of the challenge that the Democratic Party has is that there are so many different constituencies within the Democratic Party or to which the Democratic Party appears to want to serve. And so finding a message that will resonate with as many of those as possible is um, troubling um, because what happens is you trying to get a message that is, can specifically hit those different groups can then offend other groups if you don't include them or if you don't highlight certain parts. So I completely agree that there that the messaging is a challenge because they want to be all to everyone rather than having the majority. Audrey? Well, I would also add, too, that, you know, one of the things that goes um, against the Democratic's favor is that if you look at um, our media environment, so on the right, you have media that tends to really coalesce um, and serve their party, whereas on, you know, the general media and even the, the left-leaning media, you know, you actually see a lot of real journalism and there's a lot of critique. And so it's really hard to have a, like, a coordinated message that reaches everyone. And, and that's the difficulty. But I would also say, um, even within the party, as Tammy mentioned, you know, there, it's a diverse party and there are a lot of interests. I think that they're going to have to really work harder. And I also believe that Senator Warnock may be one of those people who can help lead that. Um, he's a very effective communicator. He's also someone who is a very effective persuader, and he may be able to get people um, to coordinate that message effectively. And there's no question that he has stepped up as a leader of the effort to pass uh, these measures uh, in, in the United States Senate. All right. I, we're going to keep on, on top of that as it moves forward. But, Patricia, I don't want to finish the show um, at the end of this week in which we lost Max Cleveland without giving you a chance to talk about your remarkable relationship with him over the years. So I turn it over to you to say what you want about your uh, former boss and friend, Max Cleveland. Oh. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, um, Senator Cleland, uh, really, I have him to thank for so many of the professional opportunities that I've had and, and still continue to have. Um, <clears throat> but he was also just really a, a wonderfully remarkable mentor and friend. Um, and I am just one of thousands of people who feel the exact same way about him. He never had his own family, but he built this entire family of friends around him. People just gravitated toward him. Um, and when I wrote this column, <clears throat> you know, people t 
tend to write about Senator Clemon about the things, the bad things that happened to him, the really the tragedies in his life about um, the grenade in Vietnam and um, the race that he lost in 2002. But I want people to know that the man he was was who survived all of those things and who served his country his entire life, even though serving his country led to some of his greatest disappointments and pain in his life. But he just kept doing it because he just felt so he was so in love with America, to be corny about it. He just he loved it. He just loved the country so much. And he. Um, but he used his own pain to really help other people. When, you, you know this if you're ever with him. People would, have ta- would come to him throughout the day, all day. He just leaves his apartment, and people would come to him with their own stories and their own struggles and say, Max, I was in Vietnam, or Max, my mom just died, or Max, I, I need to talk to you about something. They, don't, they did not know him, but they felt that they did. And he gave them everything he had on the inside of him. And it was just a real honor to know him. We, we should just tell our listeners that you worked for him both in, in Atlanta first, and then you went with him to Washington and serve, served in his office up there. And your lead, Tammy, the lead that, that, that Patricia wrote for her tribute was, you'd never met a person happier to be alive than Max Cleveland, which is what she means about writing a positive story about Max Cleveland. Tammy, you wanted to weigh in on this. Yes, um, Patricia, first, I, I thought the article was amazing. Um, I really appreciated as we talked um, um, before we got on air when, um, when about good governing and people who, um, you know, are, go into government with the intention of creating policy to help others. Um, and the empathy that I read um, and that I felt through the work about um, Max Cleveland and how he felt about governing, how he felt about politics, I wish could be uh, replicated throughout um, local state government and federal government to help do that good governing. I, I have about 30 seconds for each of you, Amy, and then Audrey to weigh in just very briefly. Um, so one of my very best friends, uh, Wayne McGowan, was actually Max's scheduler for a number of years. And, yeah. you know, I asked him if he had stories, and he mentioned that there was one time there was a huge event, and they're all there, and they're very stressed. And Max comes up and, you know, open, swings open the door and says, have a donut, because he was on the way <laughs> and grabbed donuts for everybody because he saw the hot sign. And, again, it was that loving of life and taking care of other people that he just did, you know, without even thinking about it. Uh- Audrey, very quickly, please. Well, Max Cleland was an amazing man. As a young man, he did a lot of firsts, and he continued to serve, and and he will be missed. Uh, We're out of time. I will say that if you believe there's a heaven, and if Max Cleland is headed there, (laughs) the first thing you'll say to the people up there is, hey, brother, how are you doing? Because that's the way he greeted all of us for years. We're out of time. Audrey Haynes, Amy Steigerwald, Tammy Greer, Patricia Murphy, thank you for a really wonderful conversation today. We'll be back on Monday. In the meantime, have a great weekend. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and please stay healthy. Goodbye, everybody.